0: Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 verses 1 through 10. A shorter passage. We've been working on uh, some longer passages here, working our way through the, go- uh, the gospel, the, uh, the book of Acts. Um, and uh, you can see we're 19 chapters in, in this book of the Bible. That is 28 chapters long and so making good progress. Following the Apostle Paul along the way of his missionary journeys. And here we'll find Paul um, entering the city of Ephesus, a city that uh, really gets a lot of attention in the New Testament, not just in the book of Ephesians, the most obvious place that we learn about what was happening in the church there, but uh, of course also in First and Second Timothy, Timothy who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And here also um, we find what is happening there through um, the writing of Luke. Who is recording these things coming alongside Paul in this portion of his journey, and um, and recording what happens? And so, um, to give you a little sense of what's happening in the story, especially if um, you're just kind of joining, um, jumping on the train here of, of the evening service uh, sermons, um, this is the middle story of a trilogy of stories, and. We heard a couple weeks ago from uh, Pastor Zach a great sermon on Apollos, who was a a vibrant, skilled young minister who was full of zeal but lacking in some knowledge. And so Priscilla and Aquila approach him to correct him and teach him the right way, uh, the right truths to teach the church. And so we had some confusion for Apollos that was corrected by good teaching and doctrine from Priscilla and Aquila. Today we'll find the middle story of that, that little trilogy where there's confusion about what baptism is really all about, um, who Jesus is and the work of the Spirit. And then next, um, the next passage we get to, there's more confusion among um, some exorcists, some Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, about uh, who Jesus is and what it means to serve in the church. And so the the common thread in this trilogy of stories is confusion and ignorance about uh, what is good, what is true, who is Christ, what is the purpose and mission of the church, and so Apollos had confusion, we'll see some confusion today, and then the seven sons of Sceva were confused also about some church matters, and, and we'll, we'll uh, address that issue when we get to it in a few weeks. So, um, we're going to read, having already prayed for illumination, starting at verses, verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So again, we see in the three stories of Acts 18 and 19, There are varying degrees of ignorance among people who believe that they're members of the body of Christ, who believe they're a part of the church. In um, last week's passage, we found one form of ignorance where Apollos was preaching the gospel but still needed some refining in his doctrine. He was confused about some of uh, the finer points of theology. So, Pastor Zach used the good example last week of a young man who discovers Reformed theology like he did, <laughs> and gets excited about sharing this new knowledge and loses track maybe of some of the main teachings of the Bible, starting to major on the minors and minor on the majors. And then in the next passage that we read, um, a little in a, in a few weeks from now, um, we'll also find a form of confusion where the seven sons of Skiva are ministering, but they are openly ignorant about some of the basic doctrines of Who is Jesus? What does it mean to be a minister in the church? And so this story falls in between those, I would say, in in terms of the level of confusion. There are people in the Ephesian church who were baptized, but the only thing they knew about baptism was the baptism that John taught to his disciples. And so they truly were ignorant. John's baptism was founded on Very good theological principles. Jesus even referred to John as the greatest among the prophets. John taught a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but it was an incomplete doctrine of baptism because, as Paul said in our passage, it was pointing forward to something that Jesus was about to do when John was ministering in the wilderness. So John taught that the kingdom of God was near, so people should repent and turn to the Lord. These are good teachings, and this is uh, good theology. But the men who who were in this church in Ephesus said that they hadn't yet heard of the Holy Spirit, they hadn't yet connected this baptism and life in the church to the ministry of Jesus. And so they were ignorant about um, what they were baptized into. Um, one of the very excellent passages that I read this week in preparation from, uh, for this passage was from the Reformed Dogmatics and Herman Bovink where he said, this passage is less about the words that a minister says during a baptism than than it is about what actually is happening during a baptism. And so when you would read that they were baptized into Christ and in the name of the Lord Jesus, sometimes we can just think, well, it would be especially important to say those words during a baptism, which would be true, but I think we need an even fuller picture of what Paul is referring to, that they're baptized into Christ, so that those aren't just words being spoken at a baptism, but that's a reality of um, how these people are now alive and have been reconciled to God. So, before we think of the specific issue of baptism itself, we can make A simple observation about this story, that it teaches us about the church in Ephesus, but also about the church today. In today's story, we see that it is possible, even for an adult, to be baptized and to remain ignorant of who Jesus is and how much they need him. It's possible for someone to receive the outward sign of baptism or even the Lord's Supper as well without truly being born again. That's a, a, a basic statement, and I think it's one of the main teachings of Acts chapter 19. So, it is a good impulse to be baptized. That is good. That's the Spirit working in someone's life. We celebrate that people want to join the church, and they want the benefit of baptism, but in order to be a true member of the church, the capital C, church, Someone must have more than a general desire to join a community, must have more than a general desire to turn away from sin. Such a person, in order to receive truly the benefit of baptism, must be born again by something that happens in their heart, in their mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the best of our ability, it is the response of or responsibility of church leadership to distinguish between those who are truly in Christ and have been baptized by the Holy Spirit versus those who are not truly in Christ and not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we go um, sort of hunting for these things and trying to, to distinguish all the time between those who are saved and unsaved, um, but it is the responsibility of the church to encourage all people who would enter these doors, and particularly those who would participate in the sacraments, to be born again, to be in Christ, to live in the name of Jesus. A helpful way to think about this is to talk about the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Those are some popular theological terms that we might not think of all that often, but are extremely helpful in a passage like this. The visible church, and the invisible church. What is the difference? The visible church is obviously what we can see. That's what it's referring to in the title. The visible church is who's on the membership rolls, whose name is in the church directory, who is giving to the budget, who is serving in the church. And it is good to be a member of the visible church. We'd never want to downplay the uh, the benefit and blessing of being a member of a congregation officially and visibly. That's what God commands, after all. That is part of the purpose of the sacraments, to give a visible sign to those who are in the visible church. But someone can only become a member of the invisible church when they're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this is the communion of saints. These are the gathering of people who have life forever with Christ. This is the communion of saints we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed. There is a communion, a fellowship of the saints who are born again by water and the word. Now hopefully that is in line with those who are members of the visible church, but thanks to stories like this, and, and especially like next week's uh, passage, um, we can see that there are those who are in working in the visible church who are not yet members of the the communion of saints, the invisible church. The invisible church transcends denominational boundaries. Isn't that good news? That uh, that you could meet someone who is a Baptist or Roman Catholic or a Methodist or Episcopalian or non-denominational or Christian Reformed, and I'm sure we've all had those experiences before on a missions trip or on vacation visiting another congregation, and you would say this is truly a place with many members of the communion of saints. A place where the invisible church is is powerfully evident. Many people baptized by the Holy Spirit, who love the word of God, who love the name of Jesus, who are living in his power. Any member of the invisible church will display the fruit of the Spirit. These members won't just show up for church. Their hearts are in it. They love the gospel. They love the kingdom of God. The name of Jesus for these people is the most wonderful name to hear. When you're a part of the invisible church, the communion of saints, baptized in the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ, you have life, real life in you. So this passage shows us that it is possible for a person to be a member of the visible church without yet becoming a member of the invisible church and thankfully in this passage that transformation occurs for the 12 men who were baptized who began the story confused about what Christianity was, what it meant to be a part of the church and conclude the story filled with the Spirit so much so they're speaking in tongues, prophesying and um, coming alongside Paul in his ministry. So this passage also prompts a question I think that sounds a little bit theological and technical, but maybe is a question that, that we think of from time to time. When does a person receive the Holy Spirit? When does a person become a member truly of the invisible church? In the early church, Jesus and the apostles. Clearly, had a kind of spiritual authority and spiritual gifting that Christians today in, uh, do not have in terms of their ability to distribute spiritual gifts to other people. And so, at times in this early church, there were amazing, even miraculous manifestations of transformation where someone, like in this story, goes from ignorance about the Spirit to speaking in tongues and prophesying in the same day. Now, of course, this can happen. But um, it's my sincere belief that today there are not those people with an apostolic authority who have a spiritual gifting to, to almost distribute the blessing of the Holy Spirit to other people in the way that the apostles would have had or the Apostle Paul in this story had. So I'll give you an example of this. We find Jesus sending his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, we could read the words of what Jesus says to them, the, the power, the spiritual gifting he gives to his disciples as they go. He said to the disciples in Matthew 10, well, Jesus sends them out instructing them, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is at hand. "'Heal the sick, raise the dead, "'cleanse lepers, cast out demons.'" So he goes on to to give more instruction, and we believe that the Lord can do these things today in the Reformed Church. We believe the Lord can heal the sick, can raise the dead, can cleanse lepers and cast out demons. We believe God could perform such a miracle today like healing someone from a chronic life-threatening disease but it's my conviction, however, that the personal ability that Jesus gave to the apostles or that Jesus gave to the apostle Paul in our story to heal the sick is, uh, is, is no longer active among particular people with that gifting in the church today. So again, it sounds a little bit technical, but it's, it's important Because there will be those false apostles who would claim to have this this ability to, on demand, on command, have that personal ability to heal the sick. And we would call them faith healers, right? And they've been um, discredited one after another. But the Lord did provide for the apostles a special spiritual gift to administer um, and pray for people that they would receive the Spirit, and it seems to happen wherever they go. So that comes into our interpretation of our text today because we should believe that the Apostle Paul had a kind of spiritual authority given to him by God whereby he could pray that people would receive the Spirit and it would happen. Amazingly, lives transformed, lives changed, turned around. And that is what happened in Ephesus. Paul prayed, and the Spirit not only filled twelve men but they immediately began giving evidence of the Spirit's presence by speaking in tongues. So while we should pray those kinds of prayers, we're called to to pray that people would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that people would be healed, that people would be born again. We don't have the same spiritual gift that the Lord gave the Apostle Paul. The technical term for this is the cessationist view, which John Calvin held very strongly but I do a little bit less strongly than Calvin in some ways. So we can return to the original question, when does someone receive the Holy Spirit? When does this transformation occur? First, the Spirit is always at work, everywhere, prompting people to feel guilt, prompting people who are not yet born again even to think about God, prompting people who are not even born again to gain insight or wisdom about the world. This is what we call common grace in the Reformed tradition. The Spirit is always at work prompting people to love their neighbor, so often against their own will, um, transforming minds and even changing hearts and bending the will even of unbelievers to love their neighbors. And so while we should pray that this continues to happen and this is the Spirit's work, we know that that there is a greater kind of spiritual baptism that happens for the believer. So generally we can say the Spirit does some kinds of things for believers and unbelievers, making people feel guilty of sin, think about God, um, care for their neighbors. But none of those other things leads to salvation. We believe that a person receives the spirit is baptized by the Holy Spirit when they repent of their sin and turn to Christ specifically. And that's a work of the Spirit. That's the work that happened by the Spirit in Ephesus and hopefully that is happening in this church as well. Without the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Without the baptism of the Holy Spirit being being covered, being washed, being transformed by the Spirit. There is no hope for life. This is exactly the teaching of the Canons of Dort, particularly in part three. So we can read there of the situation that we're in. All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins and slaves to sin. And so somebody would perhaps respond to that and say, wait a minute, I have some neighbors who aren't believers who do some pretty nice things occasionally. We would say, thanks be to God. The Spirit is bending their will to do those things almost in spite of themselves. We would give thanks to God that, that people who, who are atheist or agnostic or, or, or not believers would act in a, in a morally good way at times. And so th- this doesn't negate their depravity or their guilt before God But rather, this shows the power of God to bend the will of those who are not born again. But, in terms of our salvation, without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, every person is neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. And then the Canons of Dort go on to explain, nature cannot... Lead us towards God necessarily. And the next article, the law cannot pull us into a relationship with God because we're incapable of obeying it. And so in Article 6, a great, great passage about being baptized in the Spirit. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and the New Testaments. So when those people in Ephesus were baptized, they hadn't heard or believed the message of Christ in their first baptism. They had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but upon Paul's arrival, that is corrected by the grace of God, they're drawn into life in Christ. To be sure we can say the Spirit was preparing them even through that um, insufficient baptism to humbly listen to Paul's teaching when he would arrive later. The Spirit placed them in this exact scenario they needed to be in to hear the gospel. And when they were baptized in the Spirit, they believed, even before they were physically baptized during a worship service. So what this passage teaches us is the danger of a meaningless baptism and a meaningless life in general that is disconnected from faith in Christ, that is disconnected from the work of the Spirit. This passage shows us a contrast of the confusion of life lived apart from the Spirit and apart from Christ and a life that is lived in line with the will of God as a member of the communion of saints by the grace of God. We can see examples, by the way, of... Meaningless baptisms that are disconnected from the ministry of Christ and the work of the Spirit. I just jotted a few down in my sermon preparation. Perhaps, um, maybe especially among the older people in the sanctuary today, you've seen the film The Godfather. That's a violent film, um, a profound film in many ways, but that film, one of the most famous scenes in all of cinematic history, is the final scene, the baptism scene of the Godfather. Now, I I actually wouldn't even recommend that you would watch it because it's so violent, but the the contrast there is between a baptism that is occurring in this Roman Catholic family and people being killed by the order of the Godfather, Michael Corleone. And so, right there we can see in a a vivid portrayal a meaningless baptism that is divorced from life in Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's a, a very, very vivid portrayal, but, but the same thing could be happening with, with certainly uh, less violent examples in everyday life in the world. Another example of a, a disconnect between the sacrament of baptism and life in Christ and in the Spirit would be the, the Mormon practice of bapti- baptism for the dead. And so perhaps you're aware that it's, it's a common practice in the Mormon um, community. I wouldn't call it church. It's not a church of the Mormon community to baptize those who have passed away and even to baptize people for the sake of essentially, vicariously baptizing another person as well. And so again, you can see based on a passage like this, that's a kind of baptism that is disconnected from that other person's faith in Christ and filling in the Holy Spirit. It's a vicarious baptism that's really made... Um, impossible by a passage like this or by Jesus' words in John 3, that a person person must be baptized into Christ and in, in the Holy Spirit. A third example, one that's far more common, would be a cultural expectation to be baptized or to baptize your children regardless of a person's personal devotion to Christ. Regardless of a family's devotion to Christ, uh, we have, of course, family members in, in Europe and, um, and have had friends also from, from Europe, um, England and Germany and so forth. And it's just a cultural thing to do. We're, you know, people would say in, in Germany or in, in England or in Italy or in Spain, we're a Christian nation, so all the babies are baptized. We just baptize. That's what we do. And, and, and isn't that impossible based on a passage like this where baptism is in the Spirit and in the name of Christ, not just in word, but also in the lifestyle of the parents who are presenting their own children for baptism. So I want to repeat the claim and the warning from this text. The danger is in a meaningless baptism and a meaningless life in general that disconnects life from faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. That simply to be a member of the visible church is not necessarily to be a member of the invisible communion of saints. That's the teaching of the Canons of Dort in Article 11, if we were to continue. So, we find this great description of what God does, thankfully for us, when God carries out this, this good pleasure in the elect, meaning salvation, or works true conversion in us, God not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to us outwardly, right, the visible church being active, and enlightens our minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that we might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. But by the effective operation of the same regenerating Spirit, God also penetrates into the inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead alive The evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. God activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. So we pray that we would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, that every person who is a part of the visible church called Ammon Valley would be truly also a member of the invisible church, the communion of saints. Amen? Amen. Amen.